Ancient Rome holds such an influence on us today that we remember many of its enemies more than its heroes. There was Hannibal, Spartacus, Attila the Hun, and of course, everyone knows Mithridates the Great. Okay, so Mithridates' name isn't invoked quite as much as those other three, but he was Rome's biggest foe for a time, and for centuries had been considered in many ways on par with Hannibal. Such was his reputation among his contemporaries that Cicero called him the greatest king since the time of Alexander the Great. This is the Almost Forgotten. Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that focuses on the lives and times of great historical figures that have mostly fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Episode 1.3, Mithridates the Great. Mithridates VI of Pontus was born in 134 BC in a small but wealthy kingdom on the northeastern coastline of Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, on the Black Sea. Rome had just recently become the only remaining major power in the Mediterranean. Carthage was finally destroyed in 146 BC, the same year Macedon and the Peloponnese became Roman provinces. Although Rome had significant influence over Greece and Asia Minor for a half-century prior. Starting just east of Greece, the world Alexander the Great had conquered was also very much a Persian world. By the time Mithridates was born, the old Achaemenid empire of Cyrus, Darius, and Xerxes was long gone, but it was still a great influence. Alexander's conquests were mostly Greek kingdoms, ruled by the descendants of his generals, the Diadochi, but culturally they were Greco-Persian mashups. One of these kingdoms, the Seleucid Empire, by this time controlled little more than a few Syrian cities, having fought with Rome over Greece and having lost. Another, the Ptolemaic kingdom, ruled in Egypt but was weakened by infighting, civil wars, and rebellions. Parthia, Persian but somewhat Hellenized, was on the rise in Iran. The Maurya Empire in India had dissolved into several kingdoms. The Han Dynasty was expanding in China. Influence south of Egypt was beginning to move east, from the Kushites in Meroe to the Red Sea coast around what would become the Aksumite kingdom. Back in Anatolia, Rome controlled much of the western portion, while smaller kingdoms fought for control across the region. One of these small states was the kingdom of Pontus, with an old Hittite port named Sinope as its capital, where Mithridates was born and his father was king. The kingdom was founded in 302 BC by the son of a Persian noble, He and some followers fled east from the court of Antigonus after his father was executed. They captured a fortress in the hills of eastern Turkey and created a small kingdom. In 183 BC, Pontus captured Sinope, which was a major port on the caravan route between the Euphrates River and the Black Sea, so trade made Pontus very rich. Mithridates' lineage was pretty grand. On his father's side, he claimed Darius the Great, who ruled the Achaemenid Empire at its peak as his ancestor. On his mother's side, he was descended from two of the Diadochi. His mother's father was Antiochus IV, descended from Seleucus Nicator, 
and his wife, Stratonike. Stratonike was the granddaughter of Antigonus I. His mother's family tree also included Barsine, a Persian princess who was one of Alexander's mistresses. So, of course, Mithridates claimed that Alexander was totally a blood relative too. The kingdom was wealthy thanks to that Black Sea trade, and Mithridates was educated in the classical Greek tradition of Homer and Aristotle. But he also learned from the Persian Zoroastrian Magi. Their magic no doubt included astrology, but also some knowledge of hard sciences. Mithridates spoke Greek, Latin, and close to 20 other languages and dialects. Growing up in the port city of a trade-based kingdom, this doesn't seem that far-fetched. Mithridates' father was allied with Rome and sent troops to help them defeat Carthage, as well as for a conflict in Anatolia. Pontus was, though, at relative peace for most of his father's reign. But when Mithridates was about 15, his father was killed by poisoning. Most sources point to his mother Laodice's doing. He, Laodice, and his brother Mithridates Crestus were all willed the kingdom as joint rulers. The boys were still too young to rule, and it seemed that mom always liked the young Crestus better. Mithridates didn't feel safe in Sinope. He felt his life was in danger and feared being poisoned, for which he famously took all kinds of antidotes and built up immunities. He certainly felt like Laodice had it out for him, so he decided to get away for a while. The Roman historian Justin said he feared eventually his enemies would switch from poison to sword, so he and his most trusted friends slipped out and went on a hunting trip for seven years. Justin said he, quote, rambled through the forests and passed his nights in various places among the mountains, none knowing where he was. He accustomed himself to escape from the wild beasts or pursue them by speed of foot, and by this means, while he avoided the plots laid for him, he inured himself to endure all manner of bodily exertion, unquote. Mithridates apparently disappeared for seven years and trained like Stallone in Rocky IV, Although it's quite possible he wasn't just in a montage chopping wood and running up hills in the snow, he may have actually toured the kingdom, visiting his father's old commanders trying to gain friends and allies. While he was away, Pontus cozied up more to Rome. His mother lived extravagantly, racking up debt, and she dealt with this by taking bribes from Rome. She allowed the Roman Senate to take back the region known as Phrygia Major, which had been gifted to Mithridates' father for his loyalty to the Republic. At this point, probably around 114 BC, he was in his early 20s and no longer needed a regent. It's unclear how he took power. He may have marched into Sinope with all his hunting pals or his father's old war buddies, and that was it. He secured the throne and threw his mother and brother in prison, where they died supposedly of natural causes. So Mithridates VI was now king of Pontus, and he sought to undo his mother's losses and expand his kingdom. He began this process with very pro-Greco-Persian and specifically anti-Roman messaging. As king, he dressed and styled himself in a combination of Persian and Greek royalty. On the northern coast of the Black Sea, in today's Ukraine, or Russia, I guess, were several small city-states that made up the Cimmerian Bosporus Kingdom, made up of Greek colonies. This is not the Bosporus that modern-day Istanbul sits on top of. 
It's the strait that connects the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. Cities sat on the Crimean Peninsula and across the strait on the Taman Peninsula, very close to the Scythians who roamed the massive steppe to the north. They constantly harassed the Greeks there, and around 115 BC, a king appealed to Mithridates for help. Mithridates sent his generals Neoptolemus and Diophantos to deal with the issue, and they were doubly victorious. First, they subdued the nomadic tribes, and he was able to later call on them as allies in war. As an added bonus, Pontic protection reduced the Cimmerian Bosporus to a vassal kingdom, expanding Pontus's territory to both sides of the Black Sea. His conquest there began to reveal what at least part of his plan was, to make the Black Sea his own, much like the Romans called the Mediterranean Our Sea, Mare Nostrum. Additionally, this region was rich in grain and gold, adding to Pontus's already great wealth. Mithridates also had a strong naval presence, thanks in no small part to pirates in the Black Sea. Adrian Mayer, in her excellent The Poison King, said Pontus's navy, quote, controlled the Black Sea trade, for as long as anyone could remember, swift pirate ships had plied the same water. More than a thousand pirate vessels cruised the Black Sea and the Aegean during the first century BC. They considered themselves a sovereign nation of the high seas. Pontus had long benefited from lucrative arrangements with the pirates, ensuring safe harbors and markets where they could sell booty. His father's military advisor, the elder Dorylaus, recruited mercenaries and pirates in the Aegean and the Black Sea for Pontus. During his own wars on Rome, Mithridates would count the great pirate navies among his strongest allies, unquote. Between the lands he took and alliances he formed, he had started to piece together a sizable kingdom, but Unlike his hero Alexander, Mithridates didn't ride into battle with an army on these Black Sea campaigns. He was a politically savvy opportunist and a strategic thinker, but he trusted his generals to lead in combat. At this point, Mithridates explored the lands east of his own kingdom himself, gathering intel, forging alliances, and making plans. He left Sinope for long enough that his wife had a child that could not have been his. His wife also happened to be his sister, not uncommon in the Hellenistic world. And when he returned, she attempted to poison him. But he really did spend years building up an immunity to Iocane powder or whatever she tried to use, so she was the one who didn't survive the showdown. Soon after, around 105 BC-ish, he forged an alliance with Nicomedes III, king of Bithynia. Bithynia was important geographically, as it was on the Asian side of the Bosphorus, connecting the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. Nicomedes, like Mithridates, was allied with Rome, but maybe not happily so. He famously declared, when asked for troops to help the Republic, quote, All those eligible for military service in my kingdom have been robbed by the Roman tax farmers and sold into slavery, unquote. Together, the two rulers invaded the small coastal kingdom in between them, Paphlagonia. But Rome didn't accept the conquest of their client kingdom and demanded they restore their puppet ruler. Mithridates, ever the politician, bristled at returning the lands he felt was rightfully his, that he was reclaiming it was former Pontic territory, and Rome had promised it to his father. Nicomedes, though, acquiesced to Rome's demand. 
At least he pretended to. He installed one of his sons on the throne, who just happened to have a newly acquired Paphlagonian royal name. He sort of tricked the Romans into thinking a Paphlagonian was in charge, and essentially took the territory for himself. That was the end of his alliance with Mithridates. Meanwhile, to the south of Pontus was an area called Cappadocia. Mithridates' older sister was queen there. The young king she had married was just beginning to assert himself in ways that were counter to Pontic goals. So Mithridates had his good friend in the Cappadocian court, Gordius, assassinate the king. He felt secure with his sister ruling as a regent for her son, his nephew, Ariarathes VIII. But, to his surprise, Nicomedes soon invaded Cappadocia. Double surprise, the sister then married Nicomedes. Seems like she was making some political arrangements herself. Mithridates could now march in as the guy who was saving his nephew and drove Nicomedes' army out. Now, if there was only someone who could act as a regent for you, poor young Ariarathes. Oh, how about Gordius, the guy who everyone knows assassinated your dad? Acceptance of this new situation would mean Ariarathes was a puppet, but refusal would be cause for war. Ariarathes chose war over subservience to his father's assassin. In 101 BC, the armies of both met, but before the battle began, Mithridates walked out to the open space between the two armies to talk with Ariarathes, laying down his arms. Ariarathes had a guard search him for weapons, and when he got near his crotch, Mithridates said he had better take care lest he should find another sort of weapon than he was seeking. Oh, those Greeks. It worked better than a gun taped to the toilet. The two approached each other, and Mithridates pulled a knife out of his underpontics and sliced Ariarathes' throat, killing him in front of both armies. War was averted. The Cappadocian armies didn't want to fight after the shock of seeing their king murdered. At least that's how the story went. Mithridates certainly had a large army at that point, because around 101 BC he also took Colchis, the land on the east coast of the Black Sea, around modern-day Georgia. It was tough fighting, and the Pontic army was beginning to look like one not to be messed with. An alliance with some tribes on the northwestern portion of the Black Sea effectively made him ruler of almost all the land surrounding the sea. The only piece of coastline he didn't control was to the southwest, which included the entrance to the sea. Outside his grasp to the immediate west lay Paphlagonia, which he had already fought over and backed away from. Further west was Bithynia, Nicomedes' kingdom. Over the next few years, events continued to play out in Anatolia between the two rivals. Back in Cappadocia, Mithridates had put another nephew on the throne, but this did not last as Nicomedes continued to interfere. After nephew number two died of disease, Nicomedes came up with a third brother to take the throne and appealed to Rome. Gordius went to Rome to explain that this boy was an imposter. Like parents coming to break up the fight, Rome finally sent in Lucius Cornelius Sulla. Sulla and the Roman Senate made the two withdraw from Cappadocia and Paphlagonia and appointed new kings to rule each region in 95 BC. Unwilling to take on both Rome and Nicomedes directly, Mithridates regrouped and came up with a new plan. He sent Gordius east to Armenia, ruled by Tigranes the Great. Mithridates offered his daughter's hand in marriage, alliance, and the spoils of war if Tigranes would invade Cappadocia and give Mithridates the territory, keeping the treasure for himself. In 93 BC, Tigranes did just that, 
invading, and the Roman puppet fled. Tigranes put Gordius in charge, and Cappadocia was once again in the hands of Mithridates. Around the same time, Nicomedes died, and Mithridates saw an opening to take even more Anatolian territory. Nicomedes IV was an unpopular new king, but his brother, Socrates Crestus, was well-liked. He gave a Pontic army to Socrates, who marched against his brother in Bithynia. He took Bithynia, and Nicomedes IV fled to Italy to appeal for Roman aid. In order to distract Rome, Mithridates had his northwest Black Sea allies harass the Roman lands in Macedonia. But Rome sent Manius Aquilus to Asia Minor, the son of a hated and corrupt former Roman governor of the territory, and so began the Mithridatic Wars. The presence of the Romans was enough to make Mithridates withdraw from Cappadocia and halt advances on Bithynia. Nicomedes was reinstalled as king, and an uneasy peace set in. But the Romans knew more conflict was likely, so Aquilus decided to get ahead of things. He had Nicomedes' navy attack Pontic cities in order to draw Mithridates into war. Mithridates, realizing what was going on, sat back and allowed the attacks to come. He then sent ambassadors to the Romans asking for redress as an innocent victim of the conflict. When this failed, he realized he had little choice, quickly retook Cappadocia in 89 BC, and prepared for direct war with Rome. Mithridates called on all of his allies to fight the Romans, who were pretty well hated in the east. The size of his force, perhaps 250,000, probably surprised the Romans. It included his allies from Scythia, Thrace, Armenia, Syria, and Egypt. It included his navy with 300 ships, and another hundred ships of his pirate allies. But the first battle did not bring all these troops to bear. It didn't have much in the way of Roman involvement either. An advanced Pontic force of maybe 50,000 men, including the general Neoptolemus who did so well in Crimea, and his brother Archelaus, were outnumbered by Nicomedes' troops, sent into Pontus by Aquilus. Pontus's outnumbered infantry was pushed back, but the cavalry turned the battle in their favor. It became a rout when the Pontic army unleashed a surprise tactic. They sent 130 scythed chariots, chariots with blades on the wheels, at the Bithynian infantry, an antiquated weapon since Alexander had shown against the Persians that a properly coordinated army could simply step aside of a difficult-to-control chariot and attack it from its defenseless rear. Chariots might not have been used in the region for 200 years, Maybe that's why it worked so well, and half of Nicomedes' army was killed. Mithridates had won a fight with Rome, sort of, since the defeated were mostly Bithynians. Mithridates was not at the battle, but when his army returned with treasure and captives, he showed his brilliance as a leader by freeing Nicomedes' defeated soldiers. He gave them food, clothing, and money for their journey home. Of course, many of these soldiers, especially those drafted from outside Bithynia, immediately joined the Pontic War effort. As Nicomedes fled to the Roman camp, Aquilus began to realize he had started a war without the approval of the Senate and had lost its first battle. The Pontic army, now with Mithridates at the head, entered Bithynia to engage the Romans. Aquilus and his army fled, trying to reach the west coast of Anatolia, but Mithridates caught up with them, first capturing a group of 800 Bithynian cavalry, repeating the move from earlier, freeing them and getting them to join his cause. They caught up to the Romans and defeated them handily. 
The Romans suffered 10,000 casualties, but Aquilus and the other Roman leader, Cassius, escaped. Between the battles, defections to the Pontic side, and the sympathies of the local populace, Rome had basically lost control of Anatolia. Mithridates swept south and west, capturing the towns and cities held directly by the Romans rather than client kings, including the capital of Pergamon. And he began to publicly showcase himself, in speeches and in action, as an alternative to the Romans. He was a kindly benefactor, a Greek who would allow your lives and livelihoods to thrive, fellow Greeks. It was political maneuvering taking advantage of the rapacious taxes and cultural takeovers of the Romans. Aquilus fled to the island of Lesbos, where locals captured him and brought him to Mithridates, now in Pergamon. Aquilus's father, who had the same name, had put down a rebellion in Anatolia a generation before, through tactics considered ruthless even for the time, poisoning innocent civilians in cities allied with the rebellious leaders. His name was still hated, and to the locals he personified everything wrong with Roman rule. Mithridates made an example of Aquilus, perhaps the most hated man in Asia Minor, by pouring molten gold down his throat, sending a clear signal about his perceptions of Roman greed. But this cruelty was only a preview to a truly horrific event. The Romans had controlled their province of Asia Minor since 133 BC, when the king of Pergamon gifted them his territory. They began collecting taxes there in 123 BC, and those that couldn't afford taxes had to borrow from Roman lenders at very high rates. Those unable to pay back the loans lost their lands to Romans who came in and began taking over as the new elite of the region. This wasn't unique to Pergamon, as evidenced by Nicomedes' response to the Romans over troop levies that I mentioned earlier. It was in this backdrop in May of 88 BC, on the advice of a prominent Greek philosopher, in order to bind the Greek people together, Mithridates unleashed a coordinated effort to rid the peninsula of Roman influence forever. On the same day throughout Asia Minor, 80,000 Romans were murdered. Men, women, and children, many huddled in the temples of the cities that were traditionally off-limits to such violence, were killed. The effort needed to keep this act secret until it occurred were extraordinary, and the terror was unimaginable. It served not only to remove Roman opposition in his new territory. Everyone left was in this together now. It allowed him to launch an invasion of Greece without worrying about dissent at home, because that's what was next in Mithridates' mind, liberating Greece from Roman rule. He controlled almost all of Anatolia, the entire Black Sea, and much of the Aegean after taking many of the islands there, although there were several holdouts, including Rhodes. The island defended itself in a costly pitched battle and remained on the side of the Romans. In 87 BC, his general, Archelaus, took the island of Delos, the center of slave trade in the Mediterranean. The city was sacked, 20,000 Romans were killed, and tens of thousands of slaves were freed, joining his side. He sent envoys ahead to rally the Greek mainland to his side, and Athens joined in. Archelaus brought his troops to the city. Mithridates also sent his son Archathios and a general north through Thrace, taking the port town of Amphipolis and bringing much of Macedonia over to his side. The Peloponnese, the southern Greek peninsula, also came over to the Pontic side. At this point, the Pontic general Metrophanes took the island of Euboea in northern Greece. 
The plan was for everyone to meet in Macedonia, where the Roman commander Brutius and his army lay, to bring the might of Pontus to bear on a smaller Roman force. But Brutius attacked Metrophanes at sea, sinking two ships and slaughtering the sailors. The Pontic navy fled, and Brutius pursued them, taking the island of Skiathos, where a hospital and depot sat. Brutius cut off the hands of the freemen prisoners he took and crucified the escaped slaves, showing the kind of mercy Pontus should expect to get from now on. Rather than waiting for the mass of Pontic forces to surround him, Brutius landed back in eastern Greece and marched east to west and engaged with Archelaus's forces. The battle was indecisive, and as more Pontic forces gathered, Brutius disengaged, perhaps on orders from Sulla. Sulla was again given the chance to deal with Mithridates, but this time on very different terms. Mithridates' empire now stretched from Greece to Armenia and all around the Black Sea. Instead of going to tell a few allied warring states how to behave, Sulla was sent to defeat a true threat to Rome. As the war over Greece began, it's important to note that just as Roman and Greco-Persian cultures were different, so were their armies. Mithridates' army was an amalgam of different troops, but the infantry was still of huge importance. He utilized the phalanx, a formation of a long line of men, often more than a dozen rows deep, with shields in one hand and spears in another. The men lined up next to each other and created a wall of shields. The spears were long enough that the first four rows of fighters could attack the enemy. They were great for attacking chaotic barbarian groups on flat, open terrain. The Macedonian phalanx, developed by Alexander's father, Philip II, was the norm by now, and utilized a massive two-handed spear. By the time the Romans fought Pontus, Rome had advanced beyond this. Rome did fight in the style of the Greek phalanx for much of its early history, but they learned in the Samnite Wars how to counter the fact that the phalanx was really only able to attack forward, and outflanking was deadly to a phalanx. They developed a maniple system called a phalanx with joints that was more flexible, with smaller units that allowed commanders to move their own little phalanxes around and respond better on the field. By this time, even more reforms, including those instituted by Marius, turned the basic units into cohorts. They were using the gladius, or short swords, more now, although some contingent of troops probably still used the long phalanx spears even this late in the Republic. With this army, Sulla marched to Athens and its port city Piraeus. Many city-states, including Thebes, returned to the Roman side as soon as Sulla and his five legions landed. Sulla concentrated first on Piraeus, as Athens' only route to the sea, which was defended by Archelaus. Mithridates still commanded the sea, and Piraeus was well supplied, so it couldn't be starved out. Sulla sent out his commander, Lucius Licinius Lucullus, to raise a navy from the Roman allies while he set out to attack the town. Sulla began building siege works to take out Piraeus, and Archelaus sent out part of his force to attack. But Sulla defended it well, tipped off by two slaves within the city who sent messages out. Soon after, Archelaus led a full assault that pushed the Romans back. Near defeat, there was fortuitous timing for the Romans as a legion returned from gathering supplies. They turned the tide and forced the Pontic army back, with Archelaus rallying his troops to the end, barely making it back into the city. Sulla nearly had a victory of his own when he managed to cause severe fire damage to one of the walls and get a few troops over at night and kill the guards, 
A fierce battle raged, but Archelaus personally led reinforcements and pushed the Romans back. The situation in Athens was a little bit different. Resupply missions from Piraeus had failed, and the city was starting to starve. Apian tells of cannibalism within the city. Pontus was betrayed again, this time by deserters who told Sulla of a weak spot in the wall. In February of 86 BC, the Romans brought the wall down and entered, slaughtering the starving inhabitants. Perhaps in revenge for what happened in Anatolia, they killed women and children too. A small group made their way to the Acropolis, but they too were eventually defeated by Sulla. The tales are of streets covered in blood, and Athens was so demolished that it took 200 years for it to recover. In Piraeus, Sulla continued the attack. His rival Marius was in control in Rome, and he needed a quick victory. He spurred his men on to attack the city with greater force than before. Archelaus and his army retreated to a part of the port that was inaccessible from land. Sulla couldn't get at him there, and they were able to board ships and escape to Thessaly in northern Greece, joining up with the rest of the invasion force. In Piraeus, Archelaus had at one point come close to defeating Sulla, but now the Romans finally had a victory on their side. Oh well, Mithridates surely wouldn't lose the rest of Greece so easily. Up in Thessaly, Mithridates' son Archithias had died of disease, so when Archelaus arrived, he became the supreme commander of over 100,000 soldiers in the Pontic army. They marched out to meet Sulla, whose troops numbered about 40,000. Sulla avoided battle until they met near the town of Chironia. The Pontic troops were surprised by an attack from the tops of hills, as Roman soldiers rolled boulders down on them. It caused confusion and disorder in the Pontic camp, and that's when Sulla attacked. Sulla was able to keep the chariots from being effective, as he chose a tight space and they couldn't get up to speed. While the historical casualty numbers may be inaccurate, it was a total rout. Archelaus was able to escape to the island of Euboa, possibly with only 10,000 men. Meanwhile, the Romans had sent another army to Greece, this one to go after Sulla, who was now an outlaw as his rival Marius again controlled Rome. Sulla went west to face off with Flaccus, the commander of this group, while Mithridates' forces regrouped. In 85 BC, Dorylaus, Mithridates' childhood friend and the son of his father's general, caught up with Archelaus with 80,000 reinforcements. Sulla learned of this and wheeled back around to face this army, this time at Orchomenus. Sulla began to dig trenches to stymie the cavalry, so Archelaus attacked, almost destroying the Roman flank before Sulla rallied his troops personally. It was enough to turn the tide, and the Pontic cavalry was decimated. Archelaus' son was killed. The next morning, Sulla attacked and routed the Pontic army, driving them into the nearby marshes and slaughtering many of them, although Archelaus once again escaped to Euboa. It seems that twice Archelaus came close to defeating Sulla, but in the end, two massive Pontic forces were defeated handily. They had to leave Greece, but Mithridates managed to keep the rest of his empire mostly intact, and they did still hold Euboa. Sulla's army never did meet Flaccus's. Flaccus bypassed him, marching right through Thrace to attack Asia Minor. Sulla's lieutenant, Lucullus, had finally rounded up that fleet, which was no small thing. He had gathered ships from Rhodes and Alexandria while avoiding Mithridates' navy, which controlled the Aegean. Sulla, though, was 
suddenly in a hurry to get back to Rome to consolidate his power, especially now that his rival Marius was dead. Mithridates instructed Archelaus to negotiate a peace with Sulla. Meanwhile, Flaccus, hated by his troops, was assassinated when his lieutenant Fimbria led a mutiny. The Senate branded Fimbria an outlaw, and so he took advantage of Rome's anti-him position. He entered Troy, claiming to be a friend and an enemy of Rome, and then massacred the people before setting it ablaze. Then he defeated another of Mithridates' sons and chased the king himself to the coast where he escaped, in part because of his pirate allies, and in part because Lucullus's fleet wouldn't stop him and help that outlaw Fimbria win the glory. Mithridates did escape Fimbria and met up with Sulla to sign a treaty in western Anatolia. It was 85 BC, and the king dressed like a Persian emperor with 26,000 soldiers in tow. In true Roman fashion, Sulla was dressed in his army gear with about 1,200 men. They agreed to a peace that neither side liked. Money and treasure would go to Rome, but Mithridates would keep his territory from before the war, giving up Pergamon, Bithynia, Paphlagonia, and all the areas west of Pontus. That still left him with the riches of a Black Sea empire, northeast Anatolia, Colchis, and the Cimmerian Bosporus in his possession, as well as allies on the northwest side of the sea. The Romans repossessed western Anatolia and did not treat the inhabitants very well. The islands of the Aegean who had sided with Mithridates were so set upon by pirates that they didn't recover until the days of Constantine. Sulla went after Fimbria, who committed suicide, and then left Anatolia rather quickly to settle matters back in Rome. The province of Asia was again in Roman hands, but Mithridates' main personal enemies were gone from the peninsula, and there was a chance of peace. His kingdom was still formidable, but rebellions brewed in the Cimmerian Bosporus and Colchis. Mithridates had put his son in charge of Colchis. Perhaps the king's paranoia, or perhaps astute observations, although most sources agree on paranoia, convinced him to put the son to death. Despite his loyal service in the war with Rome, Mithridates feared, as Apian said, that rebellion was brought about by his son through his own ambition to be king. We don't hear about cultures and rebellion after that, so who knows? To deal with the Crimea, he recruited another huge army. He also modified his military to make it behave a bit more like the Romans, less unwieldy and more flexible. And he enlarged his cavalry as well. This seemed to do the trick to keep his northern alliances intact, but it worried the Romans. All the while, Mithridates was not thrilled with the peace accords. He felt like he gave up too much in Asia. The peace treaty was agreed upon by the de facto dictator of Rome, but the Senate never actually ratified it. The Pontic king started to blame the war's supreme military commander Archelaus for the defeat. Archelaus, probably wisely considering what just happened to Mithridates Jr. in Colchis, defected to the Roman side. He met up with Lucius Licinius Morena, the commander that Sulla left in charge of Fimbrian's two legions who were still in Anatolia. He convinced Morena that Mithridates was, as Rome feared, using the rebellions in the north as a pretext for rearmament to attack Roman territory. Morena launched a preemptive strike in 83 BC, marching into Cappadocia, where Mithridates had promised to withdraw from but hadn't yet. This started the Second Mithridatic War. Morena took the town of Comana, a religious center with such historical importance it was said that Agamemnon had a part in its founding. Pontic forces were surprised and killed, 
Archelaus had defected, but Mithridates held back. He reminded Morena of the treaty, but the treaty didn't really matter. Morena had attacked without Senate approval after a peace treaty that didn't get Senate approval, following a war where the two main Roman forces were led by generals that were each at one point branded as enemies of state by the Senate. The Roman Republican government was in a complete tailspin at this point. Morena's action weren't closely scrutinized. Mithridates sent embassies to Rome to ask for help and waited while Morena raided and looted the villages in Pontus. In 81 BC, when the civil war had ended, at least on the Italian peninsula, and Sulla was in charge, a Roman delegation was sent to Morena. They ordered him to stop attacking Pontus, as per the peace treaty, but did not bring a written decree. He ignored it, or, as Mithridates believed, received his real orders in the lack of a written decree, and attacked Pontus again. Mithridates had his old friend Gordius leading his army now, and they set up camp across the Halys River from Morena's legions. The 51-year-old king himself approached, leading a reinforcement army, and they routed the Romans. Mithridates retook all of Cappadocia, and allies started to show up once again in Anatolia. Sulla finally sent someone of authority to negotiate terms, and they were more favorable to Pontus, who could easily claim that they had tried to, in vain, come to a peaceful resolution, and had won militarily. The conclusion of the Second Mithridatic War was a victory for Pontus. It gave Mithridates the look once again of the freedom fighter who had stymied greedy Roman expansion with a victory against the Republic's legions. But it also allowed Sulla to look strong. The Romans could only beat Mithridates when Sulla was in charge of the army, which is all he wanted at that point. There was still no official documentation of the peace treaty, and Mithridates' ambassadors reported back to him that Sulla simply wanted him to withdraw from Cappadocia before he would sign it. Reluctantly, Mithridates did so, but Sulla withdrew himself from public life before it could be signed. No treaty still, and now no Cappadocia. And if he marched back in, that would bring Rome right back. By 80 BC, the rebellions in Italy and the real existential threats were gone, as were Marius and Sulla. There were still crises, though, for Rome. Quintus Sertorius controlled the Iberian Peninsula. He was named proconsul of Hispania by the Marian leadership when Sulla was in Asia, and was promptly told he didn't have any authority once Sulla returned. His life was probably in danger if he returned to Rome, considering the bloodletting that was happening there, so he instead led his army to North Africa. He was a skilled warrior, one of the eight Romans named by Pliny to have been awarded a grass crown, and perhaps an even better general. By 80 BC, he was back in Hispania, trying to set up an independent republic modeled on Rome with its own senate. Mithridates watched this closely, and the two men formed an alliance. Mithridates sent him a huge amount of money, and Sertorius sent his lieutenant, Marcus Marius, to help prepare for another eventual war in Anatolia. In 76 BC, Sertorius defeated an army led by Pompey the Great and almost captured him. In 75 BC, he fought three major battles against Rome, probably outright winning two of them. The third gave Pompey the upper hand, and Sertorius began losing cities and was starting to lose the war. Back on the other side of the sea, in 74 BC, Nicomedes IV died and bequeathed his kingdom of Bithynia to Rome. This was too much for Mithridates, who noted the tendency of local Roman allies to die young and leave their whole kingdoms to the Romans. 
This gift was the beginning of the third and final Mithridatic War. Rome was preoccupied in Spain, so Mithridates had some free reign in Asia. He had Marcus Marius capture some Roman towns that had been punished harshly by Sulla, freeing them by essentially keeping them Roman, just allied with Pontus and Sertorius. Meanwhile, Marcus Aurelius Cotta became the Roman proconsul of Bithynia, and Mithridates was preparing for war, gathering grain from his allies and raising another massive army, over 150,000 strong. He marched into Bithynia, where he was welcomed by the locals, while the Roman citizens fled to Cotta. Pontic forces chased them to Chalcedon, a city on the Bosphorus. The battle opened with Cotta running into the city and shutting out thousands of Romans and local allies who were quickly killed or captured. The Pontic navy simultaneously had a decisive victory, taking the harbor and killing 3,000 enemy sailors. Sulla's old lieutenant Lucullus was sent in the autumn of 74 BC to help take care of Mithridates, and by the time of the battle he had 30,000 or so men, including Fimbria's two legions. He was camped in Bithynia during this defeat, and his men tried to get him to march on an undefeated Sinope. But he wanted to pursue the king of Pontus, not the capital. Marcus Marius met him at a place called Otre, outnumbering him greatly, and Lucullus was reluctant to fight. This latest extension of the Marius-Sulla civil war was about to occur when, as Plutarch says, quote, the sky burst asunder and a huge flame-like body was seen to fall between the two armies, unquote. A meteorite seemed to have stopped a battle that was to Mithridates' advantage. He had a larger army and a Roman commander on his side. Rather than fight, the Pontic army marched under the cover of a rainy night to lay siege to the city of Cizicus, where Cotta had fled. One of his old generals recommended that he hold a mountain pass to keep Lucullus's forces at bay. This pass was crucial. If Lucullus took it, he would be able to prevent the huge Pontic army from foraging for food. Yet that's what happened. One of the Roman advisors sent by Sertorius recommended he let the Fimbrian legions come across the pass, as they had no loyalty to Lucullus and would switch sides. They were wrong, and whether or not this advisor betrayed Pontus purposefully is not known, but some of the ancient sources assume he did. Speaking of Sertorius, right around this time he was assassinated by an underling, and Pompey quickly retook Hispania. The seas of Cyzicus dragged out, with some very close calls where Pontus almost took the city. Mithridates was beginning to starve, though, unable to forage for food with that pass open. So he sent 15,000 of his cavalry back east. But Lucullus was relatively idle on the mainland, and he pursued this group and captured them. The winter was fierce, and the Pontic army was in bad shape. Mithridates decided to abandon the siege, and left with his navy while his army marched overland. Lucullus pursued the army to Lampsacos, inflicting heavy casualties and taking many prisoners. They reached the city and he laid siege, but in an ancient version of Dunkirk, the pirate allies of Pontus evacuated the army as well as the entire population of the city, leaving Lucullus besieging an empty city. They gathered in Nicomedia to continue the fight there. Meanwhile, Marcus Marius and two Pontic generals took a group of 10,000 soldiers mostly Romans, and 50 ships into the Aegean. What was his purpose? Probably not control of the seas. Pontus's pirate allies were serving them well enough. Maybe Marcus Marius was trying to help a fierce army currently laying waste to Italy, commanded by the Thracian gladiator Spartacus. 
That seemed to be Lucullus's conclusion, and he raised the forces necessary to defeat them. Marcus Marius set ashore on the island of Lemnos, hoping to avoid a naval engagement. But this allowed Lucullus to keep Marcus Marius engaged with his naval forces and a potential attack, while another group landed on the other side of the island. Soon the Pontic forces were being attacked from both sides and were routed. The three generals were found hiding in a cave, and Marcus Marius was killed. Mithridates' near victory at Cyzicus had turned into a disaster. Much of his army was gone, but the man Lucullus sent to pursue him to Nicomedia took a detour, and Mithridates returned to Pontus. He made it back to Sinope, and then went further east, deeper into Pontus's rough terrain. Lucullus declared victory against Rome's great enemy, but Mithridates was still free. And Pompey was almost done in Hispania, so he'd be heading east soon to take all the glory. And who knows what the Senate would have said. Low on supplies and morale, they might have been okay with another peace treaty. Around 72 BC, Lucullus decided to take the fight directly to Sinope, without confirmation from the Senate. The wealth of Pontus was revealed after he took a few cities. The treasure the Romans found was so great, it devalued the currency and there was a glut in the market. Mithridates' cavalry defeated Lucullus in a skirmish, and the Pontic king had taken refuge in Cabera, a highly fortified city that Lucullus didn't want to attack. Mithridates brought his forces out, but Lucullus would not engage him on the plain where the cavalry had the advantage. Mithridates now tried to replay what Lucullus did to him, going after his supply trains. Intercepting one walking in a single file down a narrow pass, a Pontic cavalry force attacked too quickly. Waiting till the line emerged single file would have probably been the slaughter of the Romans, but they didn't wait, and their horses stumbled down a hill. The Romans won the skirmish, but the fleeing Pontic cavalry led Mithridates to lose hope. He decided to flee again and regroup. As his generals began to make their escape, his army, realizing it was being abandoned, began to panic. The soldiers gathered their things to flee, and that's when Lucullus attacked, cutting apart the unformed infantry. In the chaos, Dorylaus, the king's closest compatriot and the son of his father's best friend, was killed. Mithridates did escape. He was almost taken by Roman allies in pursuit when he cut open a bag on one of his pack animals. Gold poured out, and the king was able to escape. His family did not, and most of them killed themselves with poison as Lucullus took the city. So the immunity wasn't genetic, I guess. Around 60 years old, with his wealth and his kingdom now gone, Mithridates fled to Armenia, where his 70-year-old son-in-law Tigranes still ruled four days before Lucullus arrived. Tigranes refused to surrender Mithridates, so Lucullus turned around to consolidate the kingdom of Pontus into a Roman territory. After taking care of all that administrative stuff, Lucullus invaded Armenia. This was certainly not approved by the Senate. In fact, Cicero noted his disapproval. In probably 69 BC, Lucullus brought a reluctant army of maybe 20 or 30,000 into Armenia. Already rich, following a king with no kingdom into a foreign land with another massive army was probably not an ideal situation for them. Mithridates warned Tigranes to harass the Roman troops with cavalry, but Tigranes preferred to attack head-on. He raised an army of supposedly 250,000 men, it's probably safe to say that even if the Romans weren't outnumbered 10 to 1, they were outnumbered. Tigranes remarked of the Romans that, If they are here as ambassadors, they are too many. If as enemies, altogether too few. Which would have been a better line if not for what happened next. 
Mithridates was not yet at the site of the battle with his cavalry when Lucullus surprised Tigranus by launching an attack. He was able to draw away Tigranus's heavy cavalry with his own horsemen and outflank the main cavalry force with his infantry. It was a massive defeat that scattered the Armenian army and sent Tigranus fleeing into the mountains, too late in the season for Lucullus to pursue safely. Tigranus, humiliated at the defeat, appointed Mithridates as supreme commander of his army, and they made their way to the capital of Artashata. At this point, Mithridates was probably together with Hypsocratia, his companion and wife, through the final years of his life. She was probably from the Caucasus, and she was well regarded for her beauty and her toughness, weathering some pretty difficult campaigns, always right at his side. In 68 BC, Lucullus marched towards Artashata, where he was continuously harassed by mounted archers and had trouble engaging in direct battle. Skirmishes and guerrilla warfare, which Mithridates had suggested before the last battle, lasted until the winter. As snow began falling, his army had had enough and began to mutiny, forcing him south into warmer climates. Mithridates took this opportunity to, and this truly amazes me, march back into Pontus to fight the two Fimbrian legions stationed there. In early 67 BC, he took on the Romans in the Battle of Zella, where Mithridates, now maybe 66 years old, was wounded twice. He recovered from the second wound to rally his troops against a Roman attack. It was a real victory for Mithridates. Some 7,000 of the maybe 12,000 legionnaires were killed. Lucullus arrived too late, and Mithridates then retreated back to Armenia. There, he gathered Tigranus' forces and marched in to take Cappadocia. They found no resistance, as Lucullus's legions would no longer fight for him. He was forced to return to Rome in shame, very, very wealthy shame. That's when the Roman Senate appointed Pompey to finally stamp out the threat of Mithridates. Pompey Magnus arrived in 66 BC, after Mithridates had built up his kingdom and his armies again. The fact that people would still follow him after so many defeats gives a hint at just how hated the Romans must have been. Pompey took the war right to Pontus, and Mithridates resumed the guerrilla warfare he had used against Lucullus. His Roman allies, yes, he still had those, wanted direct conflict with Pompey. But he wouldn't engage and hoped Pompey would exhaust his supplies. Instead, Pompey caught up with Mithridates on the night of a full moon. As the battle began, the moon on the horizon elongated shadows in poor light and caused the Pontic archers to shoot too soon. The Romans then charged in and defeated the Pontic forces, but Mithridates once again escaped. He fled up the Black Sea coast to Colchis, still part of his kingdom. Throughout the next year, Pompey chased him throughout the eastern Black Sea region, at the base of the Caucasus Mountains, going as far east as the Caspian Sea. But Mithridates escaped north to Crimea over the Caucasus, so Pompey turned south to deal with Tigranus. Tigranus surrendered to Pompey and was stripped of most of his kingdom, but remained in power in Armenia. Pompey set about conquering Syria, while Mithridates made his way to Fangoria on the Taman Peninsula right across from Crimea, where much of his surviving family was. His son, Makaras, ruled there. On his way, he met with the Scythians still loyal to him. He crossed over to Panticapaeon on the other side of the strait, today's city of Kirk, which still has Mount Mithridates as one of its historical landmarks. Makaras had 
established peaceful relations with Lucullus, and when Mithridates arrived, he found Macarus dead, killing himself rather than facing his father. Another son, Pharnaces, welcomed Mithridates, and the old king took charge of the kingdom, consisting of the Cimmerian Bosporus and parts of Scythia. In 64 BC, he sent embassies to Pompey, asking for his old kingdom back in exchange for paying tribute to Rome, the same as what Tigranes had received, but Pompey wasn't having any of that nonsense. Mithridates readied for war again, perhaps to defend against what he saw as inevitable Roman attacks, although some speculate he wanted to launch a direct invasion of Italy through his allies still in Thrace. But the Bosporan kingdom was not interested in bringing the destruction that Pontus had suffered north. His closest friends, those that remained, were ready to retire, not go down in some fiery attempt to die fighting against Rome. Finally, Pharnacus acted. He wanted the kingdom he would inherit to survive. He fomented a rebellion, but it was discovered. The leaders of the coup were put to death, except Pharnacus. Mithridates forgave him, but Pharnacus was worried that this stay of execution was temporary, so he got the people to rise up in support of him and hail him as the new king. Mithridates fled to a tower where he killed himself. Supposedly he tried to poison himself, but had built up such immunity to poisons that he had to use a knife. Mithridates was finally gone, but the Romans would not soon forget him. Perhaps the Romans, famous for coming back even stronger after their worst defeats, saw a little bit of themselves in Mithridates, and that's what scared them the most. Each time they beat Mithridates, he seemed to return more energized, with a bigger army and more allies. Adrian Mayer said of him, quote, Recruiting vast, ethnically diverse armies from far-flung lands, Mithridates envisioned a powerful Black Sea empire to rival Rome's might. He won magnificent victories and suffered devastating defeats in some of the most spectacular battles in antiquity. Rome's best generals won battle after battle, but were never able to lay their hands on the last untamed monarch to defy the Roman juggernaut. His followers revered him as the long-awaited savior of the East. The Romans called him the Eastern Hannibal. Mithridates became a legend in his own time, unquote. His hatred of Rome was perhaps his undoing. He always had to go a little too far to undermine them, be it in Greece or Bithynia. One step back from the brink could have given Mithridates a formidable Pontic empire encompassing most of the Black Sea, leaving that conflict for another generation and perhaps a completely different outcome. But, as it was, Mithridates the Great proved to be a visionary king who happened to, like so many others, come up just short against the might of Rome. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Tune in next time when we study another enemy of Rome, except for the time she was their ally. Please send any questions or comments to almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com and you can find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> <laughs>